I'm Amy Day. I'm the writer of In the Midst of Plenty, and I'm also the musical director for the show, and I play the piano in the show. Hi, I'm Tracy Brun, and I'll be playing guitar and doing backing vocals. Hi, I'm Gronya Hunt. I am also a guitarist in the band, but I also play the role of the Widow Martin in the show. I'm Jules Stewart, and I play drums in the show. I'm New Fitzgibbon, and I play fiddle and some guitar in the show. and welcome to Emerald Roots, official podcast of the Irish Family History Centre and the place to find great chats on all things Irish, family and history. I'm Caitlin Bain and this podcast is for anyone who's ever wondered, am I Irish? What does Guinness really taste like? Who's your one? Hi everyone, welcome back to Emerald Roots. Uh, we hope that you're doing well and we hope that you're enjoying this podcast so far. Today I am joined, as usual, by Kaylee and Fiona. Hey. Hello! And we are here on site in Strokestown Park. And the reason we're here is we are going to be sitting down and talking to the cast and crew of In the Midst of Plenty while they prepare for their nationwide tour, which starts the end of this week. So In the Midst of Plenty is a new acoustic folk musical and it's set during the time of the famine here in Strokestown. It tells the story of Bridget Connor, a woman living on the land as she tries to protect her family from the looming threats of starvation, eviction and emigration during this time. It's an incredible story and what we love about this production is it really focuses in on the lives and the stories of the forgotten voices. It tells the stories of some of the Irish women who lived at this time and how they dealt with their struggles. So we'll be sitting down with Amy Day, who is the writer and composer. We're so excited and we know that we're just going to have the best time talking to these guys. So let's go. So last year, Enchanted Cree Theatre received a grant from the Roscommon County Council to develop the show here in Strokestown. Mm. So we all assembled here for the month of June of 2022, and we are operating with almost the exact same cast we had at that time. So Tracy is a new addition to the band, Mm -hmm. but the rest of us who are in the band here have been in the band the whole time. Um, And we have a really large cast. We have a good 14 or 15 people. um, And it's, by and large, the same group of people we've been working together over the last year. So we had shows last June, and then uh, the Roscommon County Council awarded Enchanted Cree Theatre another round of grant funding to take the show to um, the Roscommon Arts Centre in September. So we've done the show five times and Mm -hmm. sold out every show. Fantastic. It's not surprising, though, because, I mean, it's such an interesting topic. And like we were saying earlier when we were all chatting, it's not something that you see being covered in media, even though... You know, it's not in the, the distant past and we are in Ireland, but you just don't see it being covered. So I mm. think it's it's really interesting that you're, you're starting um, off. Where are you, you've got a nationwide tour starting now. So where is that going mm. to and what dates? We do. So the tour begins on May 25th and 26th in Mongar. And then we are everywhere through the end of July. So we go, we then go to Cavan, we go to Longford, we go to Galway, Westport, Sligo, um, Bally Buffet, Bally Shannon, Derry, Roscommon, Carlo, Tipperary, and then we're in Dublin on July 14th. Amazing. And then the last show that we perform is in the Cavan Calling Festival um, on July 28th. And that's one of, that's the, that festival that welcomes home the Cavan diaspora. So that's why they sort of 
slotted us in for that was that's amazing oh, that's incredible that yeah. yeah i mean it sounds like you're hitting a lot of the spots that we would hear you know members of the, the diaspora that come into us talking about their ancestors leaving from so i mean for this to go out to our audience i think they're really going to understand why you're maybe touring in some of those places like that is really poignant and i think it's a story that a lot of locals will maybe be able to relate to even though you know they might not know their own famine ancestor just by virtue of living in one of those places i think you kind of have more of a connection to the story so that's really interesting and you were based here for the month of june now being in a cast can be quite a an emotional experience anyway you know you develop quite a connection but what was it like being based here, doing something like that? It was, like, obviously it was totally an immersive experience. And we were yeah. also involved in the production. Like, we were all involved in the costume making and the decoupage being done. So you lived in a little bubble when you were here, you know what yeah. I mean? And we all we were all living in each other's pockets and <laughs> eating, eating each other's food and, and yeah. cooking for each other and... Breathing each yeah. other's COVID. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yes, unfortunately. Um, ginger. Yeah. <laughs> Not good for the vocal cords. Um, so our director, Anne-Marie O'Sullivan, is very, very tied to the idea of making the show sort of a living memorial mm-hmm. um, because she, she lives on the grounds at Strokestown and this is her community and her home. And so um, you know, she's just very much surrounded by the richness of what there is at Strokestown. And so at every opportunity, Anne-Marie takes the documentation and the ways of sort of memorializing what Strokestown has has preserved in terms of the history of that particular moment and she integrates it into the show. So there are lots of examples of this throughout the sets and the costumes and other ways in which the show does that, including the character that Grania plays. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about the song that you sing and its meaning. Um, and maybe tell us about, a bit about the character Yeah, well. so uh, the character that I play is a, a woman called the Widow Kilmartin and she was a real person who lived in this kind of townland um, at the time in 1847-48 so the show was set in 1847 but um, when Amy was writing the show she decided that she wanted to bring in some real life pieces of text that had been written at the time because there's such a vast amount of that within the house and within this museum um, and she found with the help of Kieran, I believe right mm-hmm. um, this petition they went through all the petitions trying to find one partic- one petition that would work if it was set to music um, so the widow Martin wrote a letter to well, Dennis Mahan requesting relief and Amy set it to music so it's like this piece that has been written across the ages because she wrote mm. this letter back in 1848 and Amy set the music to it in 2021 <laughs> you know what I mean yeah. and um, so I suppose it's the one piece in the musical that's not 100% written by Amy because everything else has been created by you um, so this is a, a real life piece of someone who was here that who walked to Dublin do you we know? Think that? I don't think we know what happened to her. And see, this is the thing about these particular stories: is that that the experiences of these people, you know, living through this period, are not well documented. Mm-hmm. So you only have little glimpses, and that's you know, in the show, what we do is to try to create. You know, we have the real historical figures in the show, right? Like we have the landlord, we have you know, the members of parliament, we have, yeah. we have Charles Trevelyan, but then. Our Irish characters are really more, um, for the most part, they are composites Mm -hmm. of the bits and pieces that you can get. So there's all this amazing scholarship that's done about, um, you know, sort of trying to document the glimpses that we have into the lives of people who are surviving this period. So for the Widow Kilmartin, we don't know anything else about her other than that she wrote this letter. We do know that that letter was dated 1848, so she wouldn't have been part of the 1847 migration. Um, But, you know, that sort of... 
um, you know, for women in particular, right, for like an impoverished Cotier woman, we wouldn't have that much documentation about what happened in anyone's life, mm -hmm. except that there was this practice of writing these petitions, begging for, you know, can I please have six more months to pay my rent? I can't pay my rent because I spent my rent bearing my children. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Um, it's the voice of one woman, but the voice of many really, I suppose, because yeah. like, there were so many people writing those petitions looking for relief. And yeah. I suppose there's great detail in it about her story, like how mm -hmm. she was left with two children. Her husband had died. She buried two kids. She'd spent the money. Her father-in-law came and tried to take away the only animal that they had. Like, I mean, there's loads in it, yeah. even though it's like, what, it's like a two minute song or something. It's a two but, like, song, yeah. You know, there's so much in that like little letter that she wrote, mm -hmm. um, but represents so much more of what was going yeah. on at the time. And yeah. probably this is someone who, you know, we see all the time when people come into us in the centre or, you know, commission research from us, they say, I just want to know anything personal about my ancestor's life because mm -hmm. all I have is like the ship record or the census. And a lot of the time we have to say, right, well, we can try and reconstruct from kind of inferring, right, well, they lived in this place. They might have gone to this school. So to have the actual words of someone at that time is so amazing. Mm -hmm. And I think that's setting that to music then hearing that kind of lets you be emotional when you hear it because you're already emotional because it's an emotional piece of music mm -hmm. but then you're going oh my god these are the actual words if you know the story behind it that's that's really really special so I think that's probably going to hit a lot of people you know right in yeah. the heart when they hear it yeah. when writing the music did you feel the stories or where was the inspiration coming from and I know people can't see it but being here and looking around you can get a sense of it but from your perspective, what was the strongest? Well, what's really amazing about Strokestown is that there are so many treasures in terms of what's preserved here. So it made for an easy project because you have all of these letters that are written and saved, right? So mm -hmm. the thing that's both tragic, but also, you know, just an amazing resource is the fact that because the landlord here spent the entire first half of 1847 in London, right? He was an, just an absentee during the worst of the famine here. He spent that time in London, so he wrote all these letters back and forth to his land agent. So that's all preserved. Mm -hmm. And of course, it was the practice of people during that time to preserve their communications the same way that we save emails in our inbox, yeah. right? So, <laughs> but this estate just so happened to store all that stuff here, and it was just kind of hidden away until obviously the house was bought by the Calgary family in the late 70s, early 80s, and they found all this stuff. So this, the thing about Strokestown is because there was all that letter writing and everything was preserved, we just have so many of the original words of the people who were here. Mm -hmm. And from a writer's perspective, especially if you're a lyricist and you have to write 16 songs, it's really helpful to start way easier. So, um, so, you know, there are lots of lines in the show that are spoken or sung that come from things that people said or wrote. And that's just all really integrated throughout the entire show for, through many characters in the show. What I love about the song Your Mercy, about the show in general, and what we do with family history is it's really trying to bring those voices that have been silenced in the records and uh, and across history um, to the fore and it's giving them a platform to speak and express their lives and their experiences and you're literally doing that you're giving voice to a, you know kind of a woman who was silenced 200 years ago you're literally bringing it to the stage for people to hear her experience and learn from it and um, I imagine people must be surprised when you start with the outline of the production and you say it's a folk musical about the famine <laughs> <laughs> right we always have to tell people it's, it's not it's not potatoes and jazz hands <laughs> <laughs> 
I imagine you get quite a lot of that. Yes. Like, Are the... you telling me there's no box steps in the show? <laughs> <laughs> the concept of a famine musical is completely ridiculous when you just hear that. But yeah. it's, it's, it's not that, right? Yeah. It's, Absolutely, yeah. It's the idea that because, because some subject matter is so difficult and so emotional and, mm. you know, really I think one thing that we all believe very firmly is that, you know, suffering is an entertainment, right? Mm. And this is a difficult topic to treat um, sensitively and tastefully. But what we try to do is, you know, with music and the use of abstraction in forms of theater, you can allow an audience to contemplate something that is difficult without it being so direct mm -hmm. that you have to turn away. I, I can't consume a lot of other famine-related... Like, I can't watch Black 47. Mm -hmm. I can't I can't watch it. Yeah. And, you know, we made our artistic choice about how we would try to do yeah. this piece. But there is a lot of the worst of it that we just, we couldn't touch. And I know that there are criticisms that are fair based on the fact that we don't touch a lot of the worst of it in a direct way. I think it's really fitting that it is a musical mm. because that just reflects all of Irish history. Like all of our biggest sufferings have been like, that's the birth of obviously Shannos and you know, mm. the great sagas and poetry. And we've never just sat down. It's the most Irish thing I can think of to not sit down and directly talk about mm. something difficult. It's way more Irish to kind of go out of sideways and say, yeah. I'll sing a really sad song in the pub, we'll all have a yeah. glass of whiskey and cry, but I will never say this to you to your face because yeah. that's too difficult. So it's I really think we're having that discussion coming down, that yeah. there's so little artistic telling mm. of anything about the famine. Yeah. Mm. It's not spoken about and artistically, it's been kind of pushed yeah, aside as well. Yeah. So it's wonderful to see it actually taken and in an artistic form. Yeah, yeah talked about. Materialised. Yeah, and it relates back to, I think, like the people that we deal with in the centre as well. And the story that we're saying now, you know, how Irish people don't talk about this. And like the famine is not that long ago, you know, mm -hmm. and it is so not spoken about. If you ask an Irish person here, can you tell me a personal famine story from your own family? Unless they live somewhere that's really, you know, unless you live... I don't know, in Galway Bay or, you know, you live in Cove and Cork or you live somewhere that was really significant in the big story. Most people can't tell you because their own grandparents were not told by their grandparents and it was just, you know, shut down. And we find that when we speak to people in America, they feel like it was just because their family emigrated that they didn't speak about it. And we have to say to them, no, no, that is the Irish experience in general. No one speaks about it. It's just like the great unspoken, you know, even though everyone around the world when you think of Ireland it's like one of the first I'd say top three things that people think of potatoes yeah potatoes <laughs> but we don't talk about it so yeah. I think doing a, a play like this I think it's absolutely essential that stuff like this happens because mm. we're obviously not able to talk about it we're obviously not able to broach the subject so if this is how the conversation needs to start I think it's fantastic so yeah. well done <laughs> I do think it's quite interesting that obviously there is this huge just gap in silence around the famine and I read something that you had written about taking away the veil of antiquity around the great hunger because you know we are talking less than 200 years and like I remember living in London and they were celebrating 150 years of the beginning of the construction of the underground something I was using to commute to and from work the whole time and that was taking place at the exact same time as the famine in Ireland mm -hmm. and I remember just having this epiphany one time on the tube on the underground going to work one day being like blooming hell like this is this the same is, time that's shocking you know it really is shocking that you're talking 19th century and it just really brought it like much closer for yeah. me and I do think it is really important to kind of 
remind ourselves of that, yeah. that we're not talking Middle Ages. No, and, and part of what's so astonishing about the story is that you can be talking about sort of the advances of industrialization and what's happening in kind of the modern world, and yet that degree of suffering is happening mm-hmm. right here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And not just that it's it's happening, but that it's that it's allowed to happen and that there are political and economic and philosophical and ideological justifications allowing that to happen in a time that was not that long ago. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So I think sometimes when, when you're talking about historical events that are so broad in nature or that feel like they were a long time ago, I think the only way to really engage in them is to humanize them by focusing on, mm. you know, uh, one family or one community and... Mm. Yeah. Can I ask a question to the band as a whole? Have there been any moments when you've been playing the music for the show where you've had a bit of a an emotional response? <laughs> there hasn't been one rehearsal where I haven't cried. Okay. <laughs> we we cried last year. Like I mean, I don't think there's. It's weird because obviously we know what happened. I'm even getting emotional about it. Yeah. Um, we know what happens in the show and we rehearse it all the time. But you still get really emotional. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it's emotional. It's a really emotional topic, and I think this is exactly what we're talking mm. about. Mm. Only when we, because we have in our in our job in the centre every single day, every day we have someone who comes in who's who has a family immigrant, mm. and only when they start talking to us, they actually start to cry and they apologise. They're like, "Oh my god, I don't know what's happening. I don't know why I'm crying." We're like, "It's really emotional. Like yeah. that is why." Is it a personal or a human? Like I was watching something in the news and a children's hospital in Afghanistan yeah, a few yeah. weeks ago, and I just was. You know, I think it's the humanity of the story Mm -hmm. and it's the universality of the story. It's how deep the suffering was for this particular set of families in this community, but it's so universal, the experience. And it puts in context for me as an American, I've never totally understood the treatment of Irish immigrants to America. I didn't understand it and I didn't understand kind of the othering of that community in America. And it puts that in context. And I understand a lot better now what mm. people were feeling when they arrived. They yes. didn't want to have left, you know? Yes. Okay, yeah. yeah, that's and, a huge mm, point, that not yeah. wanting to have left. I yeah. think you can hear the word emigrant mm-hmm. and forget that it's like they were refugees, effectively. You know, it's yeah. not, yeah. Yeah. we kind of forget that it's not the same mm. as being an emigrant now where you move to Australia yeah. to get a nice job or something. It's different, yeah. you know? Yeah. And, it's not, and you can come back. But I think they did some research into it and that whole generation of people who were growing up in and born into the famine years all died significantly younger than Mm -hmm. counterparts because they were so malnourished and their development was stunted because of it and so you have this almost forgotten generation of people who Mm. lived the after effects of the famine and then that's obviously then leaving the next generation again with like a loss on top of a loss and it's just like compounding the issue yeah but like Um, literally the reason i'm here today is because my ancestors survived the famine yeah yeah Yeah. like that's literally it i mean that and that's crazy Mm. yeah (laughs) i often wondered what it has taken or what it took for my family and from dunmore in county galway i always kind of go what did it take for them to survive for me to be here mm, yeah. and like that you were saying nobody talks about it and nobody did talk about it because they're just traumatized mm-hmm, yeah. and i think that like maybe in modern times we don't talk about it because maybe we're a bit embarrassed that we don't know the history yes mm. and we don't feel like we can speak to it that much 
because I actually don't know any of my family history before the turn of the 20th century. And that would be pretty common. Yeah, oh, yeah. super common. You know, mm-hmm. Yeah, we find so, that that story is yeah. universal mm-hmm. across Ireland, that anyone who comes into us who is Irish, unless we get someone, you know, who's been researching, like they're, they're a historian or something, yeah. most mm-hmm. of the people who come into us who are brought in, let's say, by their son or their daughter, have mm-hmm. no knowledge beyond their own grandparents. And it is significantly that kind of post-famine generation where the cut-off seems to happen and they could be living on, which I don't know if it's the case with your family, but they could be living on the same farm. Like mm. They are living in the same town, in the mm-hmm. same area that they know they're from mm. and yet they have no knowledge and yeah, I think it is a little bit of that embarrassment of like, oh, oh, you know, we don't need to talk about that but you won't say why you won't talk about it. It's because... You don't know. Don't, I haven't a clue. Yeah. 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 Or you're afraid what you might find out. Yeah. 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 That's yeah. the other thing. You yeah. Know, yeah. You, you know, you'd figure out that your great, 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 great grandfather was a turncoat. Mm. That's it. Yeah. You know, I did it. went Protestant and got the soup and said, well, sure, those people did that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. We find quite a few people did it and then went back. Yeah. Yeah. Thank yeah. God, eh? <laughs> I, did a, I did another a music in podcast interview recently and when I turned up to the guy's house, he was living in a gate lodge for an old English landlord's house. So the, the guy who owns the house is like still in his family and he's still there. So the guy's living in this gate lodge and he's been there a few years and we just start chatting and he's like, oh, this was built in 1849. And I went, oh my God. I was like, this house was built on the land of the people that were kicked off this land mm. to go, like, to, to be part of the ship. Literally, like, this is where the, where you're living in. Yeah. And he was like, oh my God, I, I never even like looked into it. I, never, I didn't realise that that, like didn't make that connection between the family. And it's probably the first time that outside of this famine experience that I've been doing something else in my life where I went, oh my God. Mm. Like, yeah, yeah, this house was built yeah. on the land of people who were literally, like the, the people that we're talking about, the people that were, were sent on ships and sent away and the land was taken off them and yeah. it was reused for the landlord to build another house to put somebody else more worthy into or whatever in his opinion, like, and so give that land to somebody. And it's like, it's fascinating. Neil is a good place to start. What was the question? <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about your musical self, basically. Yeah, and yeah. what's your connection between like Irishness and music, music. and how the Irish love using music and folk together? Mm. And what's your connection with that? Well, I suppose the you know, Irish writers and in particular are like internationally renowned as being pretty good, mm-hmm. uh, be it musical or poetry or that kind of thing, heavy mm. wordsmiths and stuff. And then mm. you've got all the diddly music. Mm. Um, which is around a long time, mm. you know, from like Blind Harper's, I don't know, is that a thousand years ago, 800 years ago, long time ago. Mm. Um, and now we've got all the like flashy river dancers and, mm. yeah. you know, diddly mm. bands all over the world and stuff. What's your own background? Where did your musical education start? Um, I grew up in Athlone in the Midlands and a lot of my family played music. So mm-hmm. when I grew up, I'd like... 34 cousins that played fiddles and flutes and accordions and stuff. My uncles and aunts played, mum mm-hmm. and dad played. Granddad had a family band. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you grew up in the traditional yeah, kind, um, of, yeah. kind of music scene. Um, was it just so everybody plays music and that's how it is? Or was it ever talked about in any sort of a, you know... Or were you just four years of age and handed? Not, um, no, not really, no. There wasn't like that much cultural indoctrination. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> It was just like, yeah, this is how we enjoy ourselves. Yeah. yeah. Okay. 
You've hit on it though. That is yeah. that's the Irish thing about it is it's always been just part of it. And every family I find has that one section of the family. Like for me, it's my dad's family. They just have always played music, and it's never discussed. And at every, fa- I'm sure it was the same with your family. If there was thirty five, you know, I was gonna say fiddling cousins. I won't say that. <laughs> I was gonna say so. I assume then whenever the family got together, the music just began to be played at some time during the night. It was never like, okay guys, we're all gonna sit down now and watch well, Uncle James, in and you know, just and singing. just start singing. Is that the way it would have been kind of with Yeah, yeah, pretty yeah. Much, yeah. Yeah. And that is that that's mm. you know, we find that the tunes were handed down. Yes, mm. yeah. Yeah, got a decent amount my grandfather like taught, you know, most of my cousins all the family repertoire or whatever, you know. Wow. Yeah. 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 The tune, so when we all get together there's like Mm. Let's play the jigs. You yes, know. yes. Which ones? Yeah. The first ones or the second ones? Yeah, we'll do the first ones. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and the reels, and everyone yeah. knows what that means. Okay, so, yeah. that's wonderful. That's yeah. wonderful, yeah. I have a question. Doing a podcast about Irish family history and looking for music or snippets to be able to convey experiences. It's quite a hard one to find the line between the diddly eye stuff and then kind of something that's modern without losing that. The expectation, I suppose, that's there around what an Irish podcast should sound like. Mm -hmm. And you obviously have done a modern folk musical about the famine. How did you balance, I suppose, that modernizing such a an old topic. I'm so glad you asked this question. I think that there tends to be this huge almost fetishization of Irishness. Mm-hmm. Fetishization, commercialization, from certainly from our perspective as Americans and what it means to be kind of an American tourist coming to Ireland and sort of this expectation of this like prepackaged Irishness, which I think is offensive. Mm. or certainly something that I, on a conscious level, would try to stay away from myself, even if I'm not necessarily successful at that. So (laughs) so it's kind of why I think it's the right question. Because because when I picked this story, I didn't come to this story because I wanted to do something about Ireland, right? I'm a songwriter. I'm a songwriter from sort of a contemporary folk background, and I wanted to find a project that I thought was important and meaningful and had some sort of a universal message to it. But it wasn't, you know, I wasn't here thinking, "I, I must write about Ireland. I came to Strokestown during a summer when I was teaching in Ireland, and it was just it just happened to be that I thought that this story was a significant globally, mm-hmm. um, and that, that there were so many themes to it that were of, of a universal significance about sort of empathy toward displaced populations, and that's not just an Irish story. And so my intention from the beginning was, like, Ireland's musical tradition was not something that I would ever be interested in or qualified to imitate or replicate or bastardize. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, And so like that was never, that thought scares me, right? Um, And so what I tried to do with the show, and I didn't even know that the show would ever exist in Ireland, right? Mm. What I tried to do with the writing was just write the kind of music that I write, which is contemporary folk music, Mm -hmm. but then to have it, by the nature of of that genre, it leaves space for people to do what they do, Mm -hmm. right? So because, you know, so I could play a melody on the piano, but when that song leaves space for somebody like Neil to, to bring all of his entire lifetime of experience and skill mm-hmm. and musicality, then that it's, it's the sort of inclusivity of folk music that yeah. allows the show to become what it is. So you can have a vocalist like Grania mm-hmm. singing a song like Your Mercy, which would be a completely different song where it's mm-hmm. sung by 
regular American lady in Los Angeles, right? <laughs> Absolutely. That's, it, it's because, because, Gra- because Grani is singing with the wealth and the richness yeah. of her experience and her musicality. And so that can be said of every performer in our show, every actor, mm-hmm. every singer, every musician. So I think that really what the show has been doing from the beginning is, because the music's pretty simple. And it's very accessible. We don't play from a score. We play from chord charts, which is, yeah. So everybody in this band is just a, is a really skilled musician and and everyone's bringing their own. And that's how a contemporary folk musical is different from a scored musical where, you know, where every flute fill is. Yeah. 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 Right. And so, and so we have, you know, we have the cast that we have, we have the band that we have and we, we create what we can create based on the strengths of the people who are who are part of this. Yeah. And um, I think the project is it's so much better for that because yeah. Yeah. I'm just one person, right? So I just have sort of seen my role in it as being, you know, can we try to work with the best people that we can work with yeah. who can bring all of their strengths and all of their experiences to bear on the music. And that's what you'll hear, right? Yeah. You'll hear, you know, just a group of people who are uh, really generous in terms of, giving what they can, thinking through their, their parts and their roles and their performances. Yeah. Um, and so I never wanted to say, like, let me pretend to write stuff that sounds Irish. Yeah, I just, yeah, yeah, yeah. That to me, it was just kind of a distasteful approach. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But instead it was like, let me see about bringing this show to a place where people can inform the work. Yeah. Yeah. And can I ask that a question? Authentic in that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like yeah. super, uh, super Irish as well. Yeah. You know, in a way that collaborative, like folk music tradition, mm, so Irish. But do you find that the show was, let's say, for example, put on for the very first time. When the band kicked in on stage, did you find that the audience relaxed into themselves a bit more because it was such a familiar sight and they felt like, ah, I know this. There is more attention on the band than I thought there would be. Okay. And we are visible. We're on stage. Yeah, yeah we're, we're on, stage. on stage. Yeah, yeah. So it does feel, I do see people watching us and mm-hmm. our first performances, we were just off to the side in kind of a, an alcove and I could see people leaning over to watch us okay. and it does feel, I mean, I've worked on other musicals before and it, I approach it really technically yeah, and this feels very alive and mm. like I get to make some decisions in a moment mm. of what feels right and sounds right and it does feel very different from anything I've ever done and I think the audience does yeah. respond differently yeah you know that's so cool i suppose it's a medium that covers the topic in a familiar way because mm. that's how people irish people would have done it so to <laughs> that, that gives you scope then to push a bit and tell those stories but maybe challenge some ideas like preconceived ideas of the famine and of people living through the famine maybe challenging people to consider that it isn't devils and saints you know well that's i mean that's another just incredibly perceptive thing to say because that's the whole point of this is that there tends to be this horrible oversimplification Mm. to like victims and villains Mm. and that just takes away all the agency Mm. of people who had choices to make and they do make choices and the protagonist in our story is not a saint Mm -hmm. you understand her you empathize with her and you're with her through to the end but she makes some really challenging choices that are not, you know, or she's not just a victim. And I think that that's, it's, I think it's important to do. Yeah, that's great. Because when you were going through that and you mentioned, obviously, Dennis Mahan, who was the first landlord to be shot and killed. And you mentioned Charles Trevelyan, who is the great evil from an Irish perspective in the Irish story for his political, religious, all those reasons. Um, so yeah, it's fantastic to make everything more nuanced. Mm. Yeah, I think that's part of what was so interesting about this whole story to me was that there's conflict at every level. 
Yeah. Every yeah. level, from the yeah. very top Absolutely. to the very bottom, there's yeah. an, an up and down in, in each direction. Yeah. And so if you if you want to engage in some a dramatic writing exercise, oh, exactly. yeah. where there's conflict yeah. in every direction, yeah. you know, that's, you know, within the family and outside of the family and the, yeah. from the landlord to the tenant and from the landlord to parliament yeah. and everything in between. Yeah. yeah, well, even like the lyrics in Your Mercy where it's, she's just buried her husband and children and now her father-in-law's coming to try and steal a yeah. kind of one animal. Yeah. It's like, harsh, dude. You know, but obviously... The ultimate, you're of, yeah, the ultimate question of what would I do in that situation? Mm. Yeah. It's like, again, like to hark back to what we were saying earlier, because anyone here right now in the room who's Irish and who has grown up in Ireland and their family's never left, we're only here because our ancestors survived the famine. Yeah. So we we've never you know it's very rare that we sit down and really analyze what would i do in every single one of these situations the really really hard situations mm. because you just don't have to because you just think ah whereas like you know i think for a lot of our diaspora audience it's way more in the forefront of their minds because they're mm. really aware of the survival because it took a you know cross the ocean journey yeah. to survive but i think that's why again i'm really hammering this point home but that's why i think the show is so important because mm even at home we tend to gloss over you know we tend to kind of irishize the famine to yeah. use a, a weird phrase there but this is making us look at it on a personal level yeah. like for example with the widow Martin, and we're saying oh my god you know that's my great 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 granny or that is mm. my actual family member they have to go through this just and you would hope that people by seeing it i mean when anyway, you mentioned about it's a contemporary story um so you would hope that if you can look at the world they're living in today and actually reflect and go, oh. Exactly. There is no mass displacement of a population that is not a tragedy. Yeah. It, yeah. People don't choose that. They don't leave their communities, their families, their friends, the place that they grew up mm -hmm. yeah. just because they're trying to, you know, make a buck. They're not yeah. they're not doing it for fun. There is no mass displacement of a population mm -hmm. on this planet that doesn't come with serious trauma behind it. Mm -hmm. And it's not possible to sit there and sit through our show and cry about what happened to Bridget. Yes. And not and then, take that same feeling of empathy yeah. and turn around and look at the other populations on the planet right now that are experiencing that. Yeah. And that's mm -hmm. the whole idea, right? Yeah. Is that this story is, is I think, particularly sympathetic, um, certainly to American audiences, yeah. where mm -hmm. there's a lot of discrimination against immigrant or refugee mm -hmm. populations. Mm -hmm. But you can't sit there and think, look at all this empathy I have for my Irish immigrant ancestors, and then look at what's happening on the American border and say, mm -hmm. oh, but not you. Absolutely. Yeah. I think it's relevant in Ireland as about the refugees here and it's like we as a nation are the last people that should ever start being yeah. you can't come into our country because that's how we survive. And even on a contemporary <laughs> basis. How are they alive here today? The famine didn't happen in just Galway, yeah. say to pick a county, like it happened all over Ireland. So mm. Ireland, yeah, absolutely Ireland is the last country to ever close our doors to anyone. And we shouldn't be, but yet, yet we still see it happening. And I think, again, because we haven't had to face this ourselves, we haven't had to reflect back and go, oh my God, we're so lucky. We're so lucky that they took us in. We've just gone, shh, shh, don't talk about it. I would love to think that you would be able to take this to America, Canada, to mm. the diaspora. Is there a is there a broad scope plan for this? Is that kind of a something you have considered, or what's your thinking on that? Well, right now we have a lot ahead of us in Ireland. Yes. <laughs> a lot. Yeah, like we've been to the U.S. This is a, like this is the adventure of a lifetime. Yeah. Um, yeah, and and also it's the right place for the show to begin. Mm -hmm. um, oh, absolutely. Because I think yeah. that it's really scary, right? It's really scary to submit this work to an Irish cast and to an Irish audience. 
mm-hmm. but it's also the right thing to yeah. do. You know, that's our focus. Yeah. And that yeah. is a, that is daunting. Um, yeah. You know, we're, we're starting to think about whether there are options for the show to, to do other things as well. Mm-hmm. But like, I would say that that's sort of the, like, let's talk about that when the summer's over. Totally. Yeah. Understandable. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and anything can happen. Yeah. So I'll ask one last question. So obviously this is going to be running until July and it's starting on the 25th of May. So it's, it's starting really soon, but you mentioned previously about like the, the music being a collaborative thing and then also kind of taking feedback from the audience and repositioning the band in light of their reactions to it. And I know that you also plan on visiting historical societies throughout this tour, like and sitting down and, and, and having conversations with them and, are you planning on kind of incorporating any feedback like that into the play as it runs? Or is that something you'll kind of take and then look in hindsight at, okay, well, what have they said and how can we like adjust it potentially to then go again or go further afield or... Yeah, I mean, I think it just depends on what we hear. So, you know, we've started doing visits to historical societies and talking about the show and then listening, just listening um, for what people want to share, what questions people have. You know, many of our historical society visits will be after the performances. So it's not just like going to historical society and saying, come see our show. It's Mm -hmm. for many of them, it's, you know, two weeks after we'll come back and do a visit and hear. Um, Because I think that the, you know, the entire concept of what we're doing is sensitive and there are legitimate questions to be raised about how people feel about what it is that we're undertaking. So I think, I don't know what we'll do with that information, but I I don't just want to be like, here, take this Mm. and I'm going to not pay attention to the way that it's being received, so. Yeah. yeah, but didn't you hear as well recently about the newspaper thing? Well, the, I mean, that's the other thing, is that, like, the show is really benefiting from that in a, in a direct sense. For example, that what Garner's referring to is that the Irish Heritage Trust just did this film on, on our show. And the film that they made, it's part of their Great Famine Voices series, and they gave us something that we didn't know existed and we hadn't had, which is this newspaper article with the names of the people who died on the the ships that took the Strokes on 1490. Yeah, and so you know the names of the families that left, Mm -hmm. but we actually hadn't seen the names of the people who were registered in Canada to have died. Wow. And so in this film they made, they they start scrolling through this thing that that we hadn't seen before, myself and and Anne-Marie, the director, we had never seen this newspaper article, and it's going through, you know, Catherine Duffy, two, Thomas Moore, three, and it's going through name after name after name, which is now something that we're integrating into our show because there's there's a scene where, you know, I'm not going to give too many spoilers, but there's a scene where our protagonist is processing what's happened to the people who left, and now we can literally give her the newspaper clipping right where she can look at the names of people in her community and right you'll cry (laughs) (laughs) this is the goal yeah Yeah. the goal is for everyone to have a really good cry it's a cathartic experience yeah Yeah. like coming out of the pandemic like people need a good cathartic there is definitely an overlap between what you guys are doing and family history in two senses the first is family history with pretty much all of our consultations and in tears yeah and then i suppose the second thing is there's always scope to grow and learn and reshape kind of opinions potentially because if your family history is never done there could always right. be additional records to find and different you know lenses to view it through and it's the same with yourselves um i think then let's just Say thank you again for sitting down with us. Thank you so much for your time. I'm so looking forward to hearing you guys. Fantastic. 
what I love about this is, is you're sitting down and you're talking to them and you're really just getting a sense of how much heart is in this and how much they all really care about the story they're telling. And it is really, truly a wonderful story. Right now, they're touring nationwide. Tickets are in sale um, across all their locations. If you just check out inthemidstofplenty.com, all the information is there. And on that note, thank you everyone who's been listening and hopefully we'll see you at the next episode. See you then. Bye. Let your mercy be shown forth to me In this, my pitiful, this, my pitiful case By giving me time for this rent Time for this rent Until hard